Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Life is full of awesome what-ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at UH1.com. There are many things that we just cannot know at this early stage, but our scientists are learning more hour by hour. It's been just over six weeks since the discovery of the Omicron variant blew up everything we thought we knew about the virus. In England, the government now seems to be growing in confidence that it's chosen the right plan. It's now the proportionate and the responsible thing to move to Plan B in England. Before Christmas, more restrictions were on the cards. Unfortunately, I must say to people, we, we will have to reserve the, the possibility of taking further action. But then... We don't think today that there is enough evidence to justify any tougher measures before Christmas. There will be no further measures uh, before the new year. The Cabinet agreed this morning that we should stick with Plan B for another three weeks. As Omicron blows through, and I, you know, it is very much my hope and belief that it will, I, I do believe uh, that we will be able to get back to something much closer to normality. But is England on the right course? Why is it so different to what Scotland and Wales are doing? And what have we learned about the new variant since its discovery? We have only the haziest idea of how many true infections there are at the moment around the country or what the trajectory of them are. Predictions for the next month vary. Some think we're about to see the collapse of the NHS. Others believe we're at the beginning of the end of the pandemic. Both might be true. So what might the next few months look like? We're still talking about this bloody pandemic almost two years on. It feels like nothing has changed, but of course everything's changed. You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm Manveen Rana. Today, The Times science editor Tom Whipple on the Omicron wave. What next? Good. I'm ready to go. Perfect. (laughs) Thanks so much for doing this. Did you have a a good Christmas? Yeah, I mean, a a quiet one. Yet another quiet one. How was yours? Um, I I spent it entirely in in isolation. Oh, I'm so sorry. How miserable. And you've just had COVID. How how was it? Uh, Boring. I mean, I was basically fine, but uh, it was just, you know, it was annoying because Christmas was cancelled. The thing is, I've I've had five jabs now, and it was still quite unpleasant. <laughs> five. Okay, so my fifth came on the morning I tested positive, so it did nothing for me. My first two were sprays up the nose because I had a trial of the AstraZeneca's nasal spray. Oh wow! But but you should be more <laughs> you should have more immunity than anyone else. You still got it. 
I know, that's the power of Omicron. That's why we are where we are. Well, we should start. And Tom, the last time we spoke, Omicron was just becoming a thing. Where are we now? I mean, it's a new year, another new year in the pandemic. Where do things stand? What's the situation across the UK at the moment? Well, Omicron has definitely become a thing. Um, it has uh, it's broken all sorts of records. According to the last cases data, we're seeing over 200,000 cases. And now bear in mind that cases aren't infections. Cases are the, the infections we pick up. And they're particularly infections that we pick up at a time when our testing system is frankly struggling to cope with the astonishing surge. Of course, the big question now is what that means, how well our vaccines are holding up, how mild it is comparatively with regards to uh, the other variants. A million people now self-isolating as Omicron takes hold. Since the beginning of December, the government's COVID infection map shows blue areas with lower infection rates turning dark purple. It feels like everyone I know is down with COVID. I got it. Everyone got it. Some people think everyone's going to get it, but it's certainly an absolutely massive, massive wave. London commuters staying away from peak time trains this morning, observing the government plan B guidance to work from home. More hospital beds, but no more hospital staff. Pressure from the pandemic once again is unrelenting. And I guess one of the questions is whether this is the last hurrah, whether this is the last blowout of COVID and we finally get the immunity we need to move on with our lives. And at the moment, you know, we are seeing... Across the country, we are seeing alarming figures for for new cases every day. But as far as we know, are hospitalisations still relatively stable? Intensive care is stable. Hospital admissions have gone up quite a lot. They've more than doubled in the UK since this began. And the trajectory is for that to keep going higher. I mean, largely for the first time in the pandemic, it is pertinent to ask the question beloved of COVID sceptics, are they in hospital for COVID or with COVID? With this much community transmission, probably about a third of those going in are incidental in that they are testing positive but going in for other things or they're catching it in the hospital which does affect statistics, although it's still really annoying if you're a hospital to have people with COVID because you've got to do all sorts of infection control, and it's more likely that staff are going to get infected, and staff absences are a big problem as well. But I wouldn't want to overplay this either. We're still talking about two-thirds of people going in, going in because they have COVID. What's interesting is what that then translates into, and we're getting early data, but quite good data from London, which is ahead of the curve from us. These just aren't as severe as they were before. And we're seeing you know, it not translating into intensive care in the same way. Over Christmas, people may not have been across it all. And there does seem to have been so many changes. It would be worth it if you could just sort of talk us through the different restrictions now, because they are different across parts of the UK. Yes. So everyone's looking at the same data and making slightly different conclusions. In England, we are in Plan B, as it was called. 
the idea was that we could sort of fine-tune an emerging wave in the winter. And so the, the measures are things like mask mandates and advising people to work from home. In Scotland and Wales and Northern Ireland, you get slightly different restrictions. So, for instance, in Scotland, there are restrictions about how many people can meet up. And I'm just, oh God, I'm just looking this up. I'm confused <laughs> as well. <laughs> Nightclubs in Scotland um, close unless they operate as a pub with table service. Um, public events limited up to 100 people if you're indoor and 500 people at uh, outdoor events, which obviously had effects on, um, on Hogmanay. And then Mark Drayford in Wales. Let me Google that for you whilst we're Don't chatting. Worry, go for it. <laughs> um, Where I, does Mark I, Drakeford stand? Yeah, Mark, Mark Drakeford, I, I think, would be closer to the sort of indie sage style of COVID-concerned politician. So there, from Boxing Day, distancing was brought in and a maximum of six people meeting in um, in public premises nightclubs are just closed there it doesn't matter if you've got table service or not nightclubs are on the way out you know as you say everybody's looking at the same data and coming to slightly different conclusions from your conversations which side are the scientists on or are they just a split i mean is are these political decisions or are they scientifically backed who's got the most support these are inevitably political decisions um i don't think it's unreasonable to say that before Christmas, there was pressure from SAGE to introduce far stricter restrictions. Now there's less of that in that we've essentially had probably the worst of the wave. So we'd be introducing more restrictions at a time when they would have less effect. There is a situation we are in with still quite a lot of uncertainty. And then you make decisions. It's almost a a philosophical disagreement about how you deal with that uncertainty and how you deal with the trade-offs. It could still have been the case that some of the worst-case scenarios envisaged in mid-December, which haven't come to pass, it wasn't unreasonable to believe in them at the time. So if we get through it... I suspect the wrong lesson to learn would be that that's some kind of a vindication of Boris holding firm, as opposed to Boris looked at the trade-offs, made a decision amid uncertainty that could have gone wrong, but that's the nature of the world in which we live. It, it, it doesn't always mean that you should just, just ignore, ignore the scientists. I mean, it does feel like we're in a period of slight uncertainty. We don't yet know quite how this is going to work out. But just, you know, the last time we spoke, it was the first time we were talking in person in about two years. We're now back to working from home. And, you know, I've, I've missed your bookshelves. It's lovely to see them. But it does sometimes feel with a pandemic that it's one step forward, two steps back. And it's very easy to be quite downhearted about it. But it's a new year. We're looking for reasons for optimism. And, and you wrote a piece recently which summed them up quite well. So give us... Your, your reasons to be optimistic at the moment, starting, I guess, with London and the, the statistics we're seeing coming out. Yeah, London does appear to be on the turn. London is where it kicked off first, had massive hospitalizations there as well, but they haven't peaked as high as we saw last January. And they haven't translated into intensive care in the same way. And now there are signs, there are signs they're going down. 
There are many caveats on this. So the cases are now translating to higher cases amongst older people, even if overall case late rates plateauing, so that's worrying. We haven't seen the effects of New Year's filter through, and nor have we seen the effects of return to school or offices. So there's all sorts of reasons to say, look, let's not get out of the bunting just yet. But that is good news, because if London can weather it and to some extent cope, then that suggests the rest of the country can as well, although London is a younger city. So Mm. it may be intrinsically better able to cope with this anyway. That's interesting. I mean, similarly, I suppose, you know, South Africa has been ahead of the curve on this all the way through with Omicron. And we do now have more figures coming out of that. What are we seeing from South Africa? And is it encouraging? They're all but saying it's passed. They, They haven't ripped up restrictions or anything, but they're reducing restrictions. There's very much an attitude there that they have weathered the storm and that the storm was far better than it could have been. It's pretty clear now from the data that this is an intrinsically milder variant. Tom, what do we know about that? Because, you know, when we last spoke, there was a bit of uncertainty. We were worried this could be worse than previous variants. We now think it's milder. Do we know why that is? One answer is is probably chance. There's been a lot of mutations. It's change the way it behaves. And one of the consequences of that is it seems, for instance, to reproduce more in the upper respiratory tract rather than the lungs, where it does the real damage. Just sort of anecdotally, people who've had Omicron seem to sort of complain about slightly different symptoms than, say, Delta. You know, it's more throaty. People seem to suffer fewer problems with their chest and their breathing. Is that one of the reasons why it's had less severe effects? Yes, um, probably. Uh, People are still trying to work out the exact mode, but it definitely doesn't seem to be causing the same same problems in the lungs. But I mean, to be honest, the main reason why it's had less severe effects is simply because we've got so many people boosted and vaccinated. I think we can talk up a bit too much the mildness or otherwise of this, but the primary protection we have remains our own immunity. So is it still having quite devastating effects on people who haven't been vaccinated? We can see some quite bad waves in parts of Africa where it looks like countries are probably going to have, uh, and bear in mind Africa wasn't, or certainly Central Africa doesn't seem to be as badly hit as much as the rest of the world, but it looks like there are countries there that are going to have their worst waves of the pandemic as a consequence of this, which would tally with this being comparable to the original Wuhan strain in terms of severity. So that didn't turn out to be quite as optimistic as I was hoping. (laughs) But but, um, does this mean Delta could well become extinct? This is something we talked about when we last spoke. Is Omicron moving so fast that Delta, which was pretty awful, might be on its way out? It, it does. This is one of the interesting. From a geeky perspective, I've got I've got quite interested in this because uh, so when Alpha turned up, the Wuhan strain went extinct. When Delta turned up, the Alpha strain went extinct. And there are several reasons why viruses will outcompete each other. The simplest is if you're caught by one of them, you can't catch the other. And so if if Delta spreads faster than Alpha, it takes down the people who would have 
at that time being the nodes to transmit alpha because they get delta instead and they're not transmitting alpha so alpha disappears another one is behavioral and we can see that with omicron and delta you know we've changed our behavior a lot due to the arrival of omicron and what we've done to slow the spread of omicron has certainly turned the r number for delta right down so delta has has decreased because of our behavior of omicron but that doesn't mean delta's gone. Now, because of the way Omicron is spreading, it's spreading in people with prior immunity. So to an extent, it has a different ecological niche from Delta. This means that there are plausible scenarios in which the two will end up coexisting. And once we get past the Omicron wave, you could well imagine Delta taking off again. And then you annoyingly get these two viruses that barely interact and they end up producing these waves superimposed on each other, which would be really annoying for lots of reasons. But what seems interesting is that even though Omicron evades Delta's immunity, Delta does not evade Omicron's immunity. So Omicron still has the power to destroy Delta, even if Delta cannot do the same to Omicron. So look, it, it may not happen, Delta may not go extinct, but if it does, that'll be great because, you know, for the reasons we talked about severity, far nicer to have Omicron around if you've got to choose between one and the other uh, than to have Delta and certainly nicer than having them both knocking around at the same time. So does that mean if you've had Omicron recently, you're much less likely to catch Delta? Yes, yeah, there's there's now reasonable evidence of that. Um, and you, you'd, you'd expect that anyway, but it's even more so than we might have thought. It, it gives a real boost to the blood's ability to fight off Delta. I mean, that is good news. Does that mean that sort of immunity is doing better? Are we getting better results on that? We are inevitably getting more and more immunity. And this is the good news as well to an extent, although the good news comes because of the, the extent of the wave. But each new wave is pumping immunity into the population. And this is going to make each subsequent wave less severe. And partly we have to talk about immunity in different ways. When Omicron first emerged and we got these quite scary antibody experiments where it seemed to just completely evade antibodies. There was a thing we said, and I was guilty of it, which became a bit of a mantra. It was, you know, even if immunity is significantly lessened against infection, that doesn't mean that prior vaccines won't be able to stave off severe disease. And it felt a little bit like a bromide because of course we didn't have the evidence for this then we hadn't got the antibody experience slightly we're 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 one of the problems is we measure what we can measure and then that becomes the metric and the thing that we can easily measure is infection immunity we can't easily measure severe disease immunity um but there are good theoretical reasons for believing this is the case um so the things that that fight off severe disease are t cells um the things that once you're infected the things that lessen your chances of getting it badly are, are, are t cells and whereas antibodies recognize a small part of the spike t cells recognize a bigger bit of the spike also one of the really interesting things is that your t cells will recognize a different bigger bit of the spike than my t cells so whereas if within you a variant emerged that could evade antibody immunity on its spike. It could do that just by making a shuffling couple of changes. It would evade it in my body as well because my antibodies against those particular bits of the spike wouldn't work either. The same's not true of T cells. You could evade Manveen Rana's T cells, but my T cells made to the same spike by the same vaccine will be shuffled a bit anyway. And so even if it evades yours, it, it won't evade mine. So it's not a way for it to find its way out of immunity. 
So that's the good news, and that's why with each of these new waves, we're going to get more and more immunity that isn't going to vanish, or certainly not anytime soon, even if it appears that there are new ones that emerge that find their way around it and can still infect you. I mean, that is hopeful. And what about future variants? Because that that was the thing that sort of really knocked us at the end of last year, suddenly finding a, a new wave coming along. Do we think any future variants that came along, would they be milder or is there a danger that we might still get a terrible new killer variant coming? Please say no. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, there's always always a danger. This is a largely random process. There will certainly be more variants. They now have the pressure to evade immunity and they will do that. And in a sense, that's a sign that this is moving to a more normal state. At the beginning, the really worrying variants were those that could spread faster in a non-immune population. But when a virus settles down into a semi-endemic state, it's going to be finding ways to spread in a population that has seen it before. That's the only way it survives. So in a sense, this is our future that we are seeing is immune escape variants. There's no particular reason to believe that it will find a way to be significantly more severe. It doesn't benefit from being more severe or less severe. If that's the good news, in a moment, we'll be looking at the factors that might still cause trouble. But first... This is Callum MacDonald interrupting your enjoyment of Stories of Our Times to say hello from Times Radio. Every weekday morning from 5am you can join me on Early Breakfast as we unpack the day ahead just for you. We bring you the biggest talking points in sport and we bring you Times Radio's first business bulletin of the day. Before the markets have opened, you know how they're going to shape the day ahead. We can only do all of this thanks to the subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times. I hope... That is you. If it's not, you can subscribe today by visiting thetimes.co.uk forward slash stories of our times. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Well, Tom, we've covered the relatively optimistic view of of where we are. I suppose we really ought to take on the slightly more Eeyore-ish, pessimistic one now. So whilst we've sort of talked about the fact that there seem to be, you know, hospitalisations aren't out of control yet, at the start of the pandemic, one of the reasons we took on, you know, we went into lockdown and we took on these fairly harsh restrictions was to sort of flatten the curve and save the NHS. What is the state of the NHS at the moment? It's a complex picture. The NHS is often at its limit in the winter. At the moment, we are not, we're just not seeing what we saw last winter and the spring before that, in that the intensive care is just running out of beds. That's simply not happening. But 
hospital trusts are saying that they're in dire straits. We are two years into the pandemic. Everyone's exhausted. Unlike in previous ways, they're trying to get through a backlog now of other diseases, of other problems, of other things that haven't been dealt with. At the same time, dealing with all of these COVID admissions, the benchmark that we have is last winter. And there's this idea that so long as we keep admissions below the 4,000 a day that we saw last winter, then probably the NHS will struggle through. But last winter, that 4,000 a day happened on, on a kind of single day or a couple of days. There's been continual COVID pressure for such a long time now, and it, it looks likely that it's going to continue, that I suspect we'll squeeze and squeeze the NHS. And the honest truth is, if you chat to people in it, they will say, well, look, yeah, we're not going to declare collapse, but we know that the care we're giving at the moment for other things isn't what it would be if we didn't have all of these COVID patients in as well. And just sort of talk us through, I mean, what does an NHS collapse actually look like? How, how would we notice that it was happening? You know, we're already getting headlines about ambulance services on the brink. How do we know if we're, if we're there? This is the thing that actually time and time again, I've spoken to people and they've said, actually, the use of the word collapse is far from helpful. We can see what a genuine health service collapse looks like. And that's what we saw in northern Italy right at the beginning of the pandemic. And that's what absolutely petrified members of the government and ultimately led to our lockdown. But there's so many gradations of things that happen up to that. And realistically, last winter, Doctors were, to an extent, triaging cases and seeing, you know, who do we need to deal with now? Who do we risk not dealing with now? I think if you spoke honestly to, to doctors, they'd say that there were probably people who died from other things who wouldn't necessarily have died or wouldn't have died then from other things if it hadn't been for the pressures they were under. Um, I mean, that's already very serious. It, it is. It is. It, it's, you know, to an extent, it, it's inevitable. Then you look more broadly across the system. There's routine surgeries that aren't happening and there's people who just aren't going into hospitals because they don't want to trouble them. And I, I think it's fair to say that we are going to see higher cancer rates as a result of that. Which is alarming. What are your predictions for, for the NHS this year? My prediction is it will get through it, in inverted commas, but in a quiet way, there'll be all sorts of things going wrong, all sorts of staff members pushed to the limit. I think we'll probably see a lot of people for whom this is the last winter they want to work for the NHS. And I think from their point of view, they'll look back on it as, as one of the grimmest winters. But nationally, I think probably we will squeak through. In terms of Omicron and, you know, well, we're grateful that it's seems to be milder. Are there fears about whether we'll still see as many cases of long COVID, for example, as a proportion of the number of people getting it? If it is ripping through the system, is that is that something we need to worry about? Long COVID is one of the great unknowns of this pandemic. And to extent, it's become a bit of a political Rorschach test. The truth is, we don't quite know what the burden is. I think a reasonable assessment is there are going to be people who suffer from long COVID, who suffer from this whole suite of symptoms that we're only just disentangling them. And we've, we've lumped them all together, but actually there's lots of things going on there. There's people who've recovered from ICU, who you would expect to still be feeling sick. There's other people who are complaining of many of these classic long COVID symptoms, such as brain fog, and you can see the biological basis and there's possibly ways of treating them. But there's also quite depressing stats that just seem to show that they 
don't get better on their own months afterwards. Um, and in between this, there's all sorts of other things that I think we're going to be wrestling with for quite some time. And Tom, I, I realise at every point during this pandemic, going back two years now, I've asked you the impossible, which is, what now? What, what are your predictions? We're into year two now, 2022. What have we got coming up? I think all I would be prepared to say now is it's not likely to get worse and it is likely to get better, but it's going to happen incrementally so that we almost don't know it. I mean, it feels like nothing has changed, but of course everything's changed. The fatigue comes from the fact that this is still at the top of our politics, but everything's a lot better. And I think this time next year, even if we are sitting here doing a, a, another podcast about viruses, it will be, again, a lot better. You've been listening to Stories of Our Times, a podcast brought to you thanks to the subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times, with me, Manveen Rana, and my guest, The Times science editor, Tom Whipple. You can find all of Tom's reporting and analysis at thetimes.co.uk with a subscription or in print. The producer today was Oliver Adamson. The executive producer was James Shield, and sound design was by David Crackles. If you'd like to get in touch with us with any ideas for future episodes or any thoughts on what you've just heard, then do drop us a line to storiesofourtimes at thetimes.co.uk. And if you enjoy the podcast, please do leave us a review. It'll just help others to find it. Thanks for listening. See you tomorrow. up what was that boring no flavor that was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week kiki palmer here and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free hello fresh jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi now that's music to my mouth hello fresh let's get this dinner party started discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com